on episode number 43 of the United Methodist People podcast with Reverend Dr. Brad Miller. We engage in an in-depth conversation with Indiana area Bishop Julius Trimble and the Bishop of the Baltimore-Washington Episcopal area, Bishop Latrell Easterling, about reflections on January 6th insurrection in Washington, D.C., and all matters about racial harmony in the church, peace and justice, as well as the state of the United Methodist Church moving forward. In the end, a conversation about encouragement and hope. Here on episode number 43 of the United Methodist People podcast. We have for a long time become a nation of identity politics to the point where those identities supersede any connectedness that we might see, even who we are in Jesus Christ. So these politics of othering uh, have been driving us for for some time. And I think that came to a head on, on, on January 6th. Welcome to the United Methodist People Podcast with Reverend Dr. Brad Miller. Brad believes that strengthening the connection in the United Methodist Church is essential to accomplishing the mission of making disciples of Jesus Christ for the transformation of the world. The United Methodist People podcast helps clergy and church leaders connect with key insights, hear inspiring stories, and learn from the people making a difference in the United Methodist Church through conversation and commentary. And now, here's Brad. Hello, good people. Welcome to the United Methodist People podcast with Reverend Dr. Brad Miller. This is where we have conversations and commentary to strengthen the connection in the United Methodist Church. We're doing so today by having a very wonderful and and complete conversation with two bishops of our church, Bishop Julius Tremble of the Indiana area. He has joined me on several episodes where we look to have a word of encouragement, and that's the theme of Bishop Tremble, is to be an encourager of others. And our special guest today is Bishop Latrell Easterling from the Baltimore-Washington Episcopal area. And we're going to have a conversation today about things that matter regarding events in Washington, D.C. on January 6th. Bishop Easterling brings the perspective of being the bishop of that area where the, uh, where the uh, riots took place looking to overthrow our government and violence took place. Of course, they're in Washington, D.C., they also had violence and uh, destruction that happened in some of our African-American United Methodist churches during the Black Lives Matter events of the summer. So she's going to speak to that. We're going to talk about the Bible. We're going to talk about peace and justice issues. We're going to talk about all these types of types of things. Bishop Trumbull has been the bishop of the, of the Indiana area since 2016, prior to that serving in the Iowa uh, Episcopal area. And what I want you to know about him further is he has a real heart for dealing with the issues of domestic violence, mental health issues, and is active in social justice and fights against gun violence as well as immigration reform. Bishop Easterling served in the New England Annual Conference as a district superintendent prior to becoming the Bishop of Baltimore, Washington in 2016. She has a background in the legal field, having a law degree as well as her Master of Divinity degree and serving for a time as a prosecuting attorney. What I want you to know further about her is that she is involved with ministries that have to do with those seeking to remove themselves from abusive relationships. It was my honor and privilege to speak with and have a great conversation with these two great leaders in the church. We have had lots of great conversations on the United Methodist People podcast with leaders in our church. You can find all of that at unitedmethodistpodcast.com. Right now, let's get into our conversation today with Bishop Julius Trimble and Bishop Latrell Easterling right now. Reverend Dr. Brad Miller here with you on the United Methodist People Podcast. 
the podcast where we seek to strengthen the connection in the United Methodist Church to support our overall mission of making disciples of Jesus Christ for the transformation of the world. It's been my pleasure for a number of episodes to be joined by Bishop Julius Tremble, the Episcopal leader of the Indiana area, who has joined me with the theme of being encouraged on a number of of podcast episodes. And he was uh, assigned to the Indiana area in 2016 after serving eight years as the Episcopal leader of the Iowa Annual Conference. And I know him as a man of deep faith who's been involved with such issues as domestic violence, mental health issues, the author of a church of, of a book called Faithful Church in a Healthy World, with his reflections on the nature of our environment and so on, and involved with Peace and Justice Ministries. And he invited today to our podcast episode a very special guest, Bishop Latrell Easterling, who is the Episcopal leader of the Baltimore Washington Episcopal area. And she came to her office in September of 2016 after serving in the New England annual conference as a district, as a conference superintendent. She is very involved with advocacy and peace and justice ministries, education, uh, also the law. She has a uh, undergraduate degree and a graduate degree from Indiana University in law and a master's divinity from Boston University School of Theology. And she's also involved with many advocacy groups regarding abusive relationships and helping people to leave those. She is also a passionate preacher who I've heard preach before, received numerous awards, and she is our guest today on the United Methodist People podcast. So Bishop Easterling and Bishop Trimble, welcome to the podcast today. Thank you, Brad. Good to be with you. and Good to be with my colleague, Bishop Easterling. Thank you. I feel the exact same way. I'm honored to be invited into this conversation. It is uh, all my honor as well, and I'm excited for us to have a conversation about things that matter. Uh, that's what we want to do here. But I really, uh, Bishop Easterling, uh, we'll dive into some you know really pertinent issues in a moment. But I also like to hear the personal side of things, and I know our listeners do too. And would you mind sharing for a moment your story of how you came to faith, how you came to know Jesus Christ personally, and then how that um, uh, navigated to the place where you now serve as the Bishop of Baltimore, Washington. Well, the place that I came to faith is, is in the geography in which both of you are situated. Uh, Bishop Trimble well knows you're in my home conference, born and raised in Indianapolis, Indiana, and a member of University United Methodist Church, first under Reverend George Rice, then under the leadership of Reverend Harry A. Coleman. Both of them, uh, deep men of faith, both of them uh, engaging with with, with young people um, and, always encouraging us to uh, have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. But even before I got there, my mother, grandmother, and father were deep disciples of Jesus Christ, very much connected in the church. My mother ultimately became a local pastor, but, but even before that, both of them were very involved lay persons. And so just grew up in a home where, where you know, I, I don't ever remember not hearing the stories of faith. I don't ever remember not having, you know, Bible study. I, I don't ever remember that even being an option. So certainly grew up immersed in it, both at home and then again at university. And I remember quite well, it was a Friday evening and we were having a revival and they opened the doors of the church, as we say in the black church tradition. And uh, at 16 years old, I walked down that aisle on a Friday night to give my life to Christ. And as I say, never looked back. Um, I was involved in the youth group. Uh, I was involved uh, in choir throughout uh, my, my upbringing. And so all of those things continue to keep the word of God and the spirit of God before me, but also within me. Uh, and so again, at that young age, gave my life to Christ. Um, even when I went away to school, I jokingly tell folks, you know, a lot of kids go to college and can't wait to stop going to church. Well, I was crazy enough that I kept going, right? I didn't take that break that a lot of college kids take. Maybe I thought my mother was still looking over my shoulder, right? Had some some network to find out what I was doing in Bloomington. But I kept going um, to church. And, and so it's never not been a, a part of my life. 
um, you talk about my journey to here, you know, uh, left the United Methodist Church when I moved to Colorado uh, because I could not find a church home that felt welcoming for me. Uh, encountered racism, just to be honest with you, in the Methodist churches there. And that's when I began my relationship with the African Methodist Episcopal Church. Um, but nothing's ever lost in the economy of God. I believe that that was supposed to be my journey. Uh, I named the two persons who were my faith leaders in the church in Indianapolis, but I'd not seen a woman in that role in leadership. It wasn't until I got to shorter African Methodist Episcopal Church in Denver, Colorado, that I ran into at that time, Reverend Teresa Fry Brown. She's now Reverend Doctor and the um, holds the bandy chair of preaching at Candler School of Theology. But she was my mother in the ministry, if you will. And watching her in the pulpit, watching her as a black woman have agency and power and prominence in a pulpit uh, as God was beginning to call me into ministry, helped me to know that I wasn't crazy, that uh, it, it, I could believe that God was calling me to use me in this way. And so that's when I actually entered ministry, was through the AME Church, um, was bivocational for a long time, uh, as you said, in law, uh, human resources. And, and then God said, okay, that, that's good. You, you've had your foot in both. I need you to be all in. And that's when I left Colorado to go uh, to Boston to attend Boston University School of Theology and uh, came into ministry full-time, served three churches in New England prior to becoming a district superintendent, which I was privileged to do for four years before I was asked to let my name come forward for the episcopacy. I never thought I would be elected at, at that uh, <laughs> jurisdictional conference. I thought if anything, people will begin to know who I am. And maybe in 2020, I would have an opportunity to allow my name to go forward again. But uh, it was God's, it was God's will that uh, I was elected at that jurisdictional conference. If I could say one last thing, it was a powerful move of the spirit because never before in the history of the United Methodist Church have two African-American women been elected out of the same jurisdictional conference. Never. As a matter of fact, when Bishop Moore Kakoy was elected first, those who were praying for me and supporting me actually began to send me text messages and say, we're so sorry. We're sorry that this is not going to happen for you because it, there's no way they're going to elect two African-American women, but to God be the glory. God had other plans. So yep. that is Absolutely. how I got here. Absolutely. What a wonderful story of faith. And I just might mention that uh, Reverend Harry Coleman was my superintendent at one time. And I, yeah. I serve in the city of Indianapolis, not all that far from university church. And so, uh, so uh, I connect with that. And but right now you are in the midst of uh, ministry in Washington, DC and Baltimore and all the environs of your annual conference. And, and we would really would like to hear your take a little bit on what's going on in the world, especially in Washington, D.C., especially in light of what happened on January the 6th. And uh, Mr. Trumbo, if you'll indulge me for a second, I would just like to really like to hear any personal experiences that you might have had, Bishop Easterling, that kind of were around living and working and being around that part of the world when the... Um, events of January 6th occurred, and because that's such a pivotal moment for our discussion here. Right. Well, I must tell you, unfortunately, I was not surprised when January 6th happened. Taken aback yet to actually see it, right, but not surprised. We had been as a conference preparing, we put together what we called our election 2020 protocol and guidelines. It was posted on our website for several uh, weeks leading up to the election because we anticipated that there might be some unrest, some violence. Didn't anticipate that there would be an insurrection, but uh, we anticipated that there would be agitation and perhaps confrontation in especially the DC area. We had had churches vandalized. We had Black Lives Matter signs removed uh, from their place and burned in the street. As a matter of fact, one of the members of the Proud Boy is under um, a criminal indictment right now, uh, criminal charges for, for that very act. So we were preparing our congregations to be both a place of witness 
but also to be prepared for violence and, and, and to give them our uh, best guidance and best practices on how to be prepared for that. We have for a, a long time become a nation of identity politics to the point where those identities supersede, right? Any connectedness that we might see, even who we are in Jesus Christ. So, 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 so these politics of othering, right? Uh, have been driving us for, for some time. And I think that came to a head on, on, on January 6th, rather than seeing ourselves as the United States of America, believing that our democratic process ultimately will always serve everyone if we live into uh, its best ideals, if the country lives into who she says she is, that we can all climb together, rather than that, this notion of dividing us, making us believe that we have to compete with one another to be able to have you know, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, or from a Christian standpoint, to have our daily bread, to believe we have to compete against one another to get there it is the message that we've been sold, and too many have bought it. And so again, we, we were prepared for something uh, not prepared, as I said, to see a full-out insurrection. But we had been warned for months that hate group membership in our area had been escalating at a, at a pretty uh, steady clip. And, and so, um, as I said, heartbroken to see it happen, but not completely surprised. We've been on alert, and we unfortunately remain on alert, uh, as we know that 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 these things are continuing to brew right under the surface and could erupt again at any time. Certainly could. And it, that's, uh, and what we want to be having some conversation about is not only kind of dissecting and understanding it, but what it would be a response to that. You've already mentioned several things there. Bishop Trimble, I know you had some things that you really wanted to uh, have a conversation with Bishop uh, Easterling about. Well, I think we're, we're off to a, a good start in terms of the conversation I remember January the 6th because afterwards, several of the pa- a number of pastors were questioning how they would prepare to preach that Sunday following the insurrection, the attack on the, on the Capitol. And I, I wrote a letter, Brad, you saw a letter to Martin Luther King Jr. based upon some of that, based upon January the 6th, what happened. But uh, what, I, what I posted and shared with pastors were, was to preach from the lectionary, the, the the Sunday following uh, January 6th was Baptism of the Lord mm-hmm. Sunday. And I rec- I suggested, hey, if you preach from the gospel, if you preach from the baptism of the Lord, use some of our baptismal liturgy uh, and you'll be fine. You know, that we are, we will resist evil in every form, uh, injustice in every form. So if you're on solid ground, because many persons who are, who are in congregations where they, they don't feel free, these are congregation where many people have bought the big lie uh, that, that uh, the former president was, uh, you know, continuing to, to foment around the election. And, and I said, if we stay faithful to, to the preaching the gospel, uh, you'll be on solid ground, embrace our social principles, embrace our baptismal liturgy, that indeed as United Methodists, at least we have all the right words in the right places Sometimes our words don't match up with our with our action. I wanted to ask uh, Bishop Easterling. Uh, um, I think it was in December that the, the uh, an article appeared. You're probably aware of this. Uh, as the coronavirus, I'm reading from. I think this was the USA Today. Uh, the coronavirus pandemic continues to threaten hard hit minority communities. The nation's largest association of doctors passed the policy that recognize racism as a public health threat. Mm-hmm. The American Medical Association House of Delegates, which included over 600 plus medical specialists, released a statement saying that, described three tiers of racism detailed in the policy, systemic, cultural, and interpersonal. Each poses specific barriers to, the, to quality medical care, good health, hindrance, advancement of health equity, and so forth and so on. Basically, something we already knew, the American Medical Association has now you know, come out with a policy stating that racism in and of itself, Brad, is, uh, is, a, is, is a public health crisis. Mm. So we, we, the coronavirus, 
uh, kind of help pull the curtain back from that. We even see this happening out now, Bishop Easterling. For example, I live in Hamilton County. There's, you have three times the number of options to get a COVID vaccine in Hamilton County than you do in Marion County. And there's more vaccine available in Hamilton County than there is in Marion County. So, so I just wanted to know what your, what your take and, was. And, on and just for perspective, the, po- the, the population of Marion County where Indianapolis is would be five times what it would be in Hamilton County, approximately. And I knew, I knew Bishop Easterling would be familiar with those, right. those, those terms, but I just, that's one of the, one area we as a United, we as a denomination have said in the council of bishops that we are serious about dismantling racism. It's, it can't happen overnight. Uh, you, you can't take a 400 year history and correct it in 40 days. But I think the fact that, that we're uh, threatened on every side, uh, but, but not, but not, not defeated is, is, is amazing in and of itself. Um, and, and what can you say about some of the work that you're doing in Baltimore, Washington conference, because we're looking to model some of the best practices in other areas around addressing racism from a systemic and and institutional standpoint. Sure. Well, thank you. What I want to do first, though, if I could, is back up a minute and deal with that medical racism that you talked about, because um, so, so what, as you said, what we know anecdotally and personally, institutions are finally beginning to, through research, validate. We know from our personal lives what it's like to be before a doctor and to be dismissed. As a woman, I know what it is to go into a doctor's office and have my concerns dismissed. If, if, if you would just lose a few pounds, oh, it, it's in your head, that kind of thing. I watched my mother, a strong woman, very strong, professional her entire life, right? Intelligent, graduated from college before she was 18 years old, right? I watched her suffer for a year with doctors writing her off. She had rheumatoid arthritis. It took her about five different doctors to take her seriously, to finally diagnose her condition and begin to treat it. And even as they began to treat it, one of the first things her doctor said to her was, well, the best medication for this is probably too expensive for you. Mm. My mother looked at him and said, I, didn't, I don't remember telling you my socioeconomic status. All I need you to do is write me a prescription. You let me worry about how I will care for it. So, so to, to have that kind of experience growing up and then to pastor predominantly white churches in, in Boston, which I did two of them, and to watch women and, and anyone, women and men who were Caucasian in their 60s, 70s, 80s, still being offered the absolute best of medical care, still getting full hip replacements and knee replacements into their 80s, when so often we see people of color at that time sort of being said, well, you know, you've had a good life, it's okay, this is kind of how it is. And so we certainly know, as I said, anecdotally, there's this disparity. The research is finally catching up with what we know. But what has to happen, and this is both in the medical realm, but also, as you say, in in the work that, that we're doing in our conferences, Persons have to be willing to hear these stories, to read this research, and not find ways to dismiss it. As we called the conference into this work of anti-racism, and our program is called We Rise United. It is systemic. It flows throughout the conference at every level, right? From the pew to the Episcopal office, from every organization, every task force, every team, every committee has its work to do with respect to this. We're doing our intercultural competency work. We're taking the IDI. We're getting our assessments. Every person that's United Methodist in this conference should ultimately have uh, the opportunity to, to be influenced by this work. But as we began to call the conference into this, I began to get letters saying, why should we have to do this? If you Black people would simply stop killing each other, if Mm -hmm. you Black people would stop having children out of wedlock, I literally got a letter to this effect. If you Black people would stop having children out of wedlock and, 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 and fighting each other, your communities could rise. Your communities could do better. So again, we can amass all of the information that we want to, but if persons want to continue to sit in, in, in the biases, 
right? In the, in, in, in the poor information they've been getting. If our clergy wanna to continue to sit in the, in, in the poor theology that, that some of them have allowed themselves to, to be immersed in, we won't get where we need to be. As you said, our United Methodist Church has all the right language in all the right places, from our baptismal vows to our United Methodist Constitution, right? Read, read, read the fifth installment of that constitution. It says that we will fight racism everywhere. Everything about us says that we should be further down the road on this issue, leading the nation on this issue. But, but we, we tolerate and perpetuate misinformation and excuses rather than to really hold one another accountable and disabuse ourselves of, of, of those things. Bishop Easterly, I think you really touch on something that's so important for us to at least address in some form or another, is just this understanding of, of theology and scripture and the nature of the church as a response to this, because so many people, just like the letters you received, have somehow bent and skewed their understanding of, uh, of what it means to be a Christian, theology, the biblical narrative to fit their agenda, political, personal, racial, whatever it is. And it seems like there's just a, just a, just a really odd view of what truth is. Mm. And uh, so I just wonder if you could just kind of speak to that a little bit, how we in the church can address this matter of truth, this matter of this whole different view of uh, theology and understanding how, what are we, what are we going to do about this? We need to act on this. Absolutely. We absolutely do. You, you hit the nail on the head, uh, Reverend Dr. Miller. Um, <laughs> what is truth? What is truth? To sit down and to try to even engage in Bible study with persons uh, and, and to read the same scriptures and walk away with such different interpretations of them, how that happens is amazing to me. You know, I, I look to uh, the 32nd chapter of Exodus, and I really began to look at Moses and Aaron. Right. So here we have Moses up in the mountain, up in the clouds, right, receiving the word from God. And we have Aaron down with the people. Now, just a few verses before these folks had engaged in a covenant. We are with you, God. You brought us <laughs> out of the land of Egypt. Right. You, you carried us through the wilderness. We are with you. And Moses, you are our leader. We will wait for you. <laughs> Well, then the, the 32nd chapter opens up with, look, Moses, you've been gone too long. Yeah. We don't know if and when you are ever coming back. So Aaron, here's what we need you to do. We need you to take our stuff and make us a calf. Aaron did not expend one ounce of breath trying to talk them out of what they had covenanted to do just a few chapters before. And I wonder sometimes if we as church leaders, I'm talking about bishops, district superintendent and clergy, are we Moses or are we Aaron? Oh do we show up in our places of leadership and do we appease the people or do we remind ourselves and one another of the covenants that we've made? Bishop Trimble talked about our baptismal covenant, right? As followers of Jesus Christ, we made a commitment to be continually transformed that it hurts. It hurts to do that work, to disabuse ourselves of, of deeply held beliefs and ideologies and things we've heard in our families. But that's our call. But I think too many of us, out of self-preservation, out of not wanting to offend anybody, out of concern for whether or not people will take their pocketbooks and their wallets and leave, we have gotten into a practice of appeasement rather than prophetic preaching and transformation. So I, I think that that is what has allowed us to become stagnant and allowed us to become complicit in racism rather than transformative agents. Bishop Trumbull, you want to take a, take a, uh, speak to this matter as well? well I, you know, I, I, you know, you've heard it said that uh, silence is complicity and, uh, the way we used to, I'm using Chicago language now, Brad, but, you know, they used to say, <laughs> you know, right. people, people would, people would say, you know, taking the Moses story, oh, don't worry, Moses, I'll stick by you through thick and thin, but if nine jump on you, they'll make it 10. So I'm <laughs> telling you, people will promise to, people will promise to follow God, promise to follow you. And too often we have been guilty. Uh, and, and sometimes I'll, I'll confess for myself, 
of pressing the mute button on our prophetic witness. Uh, January the 6th, uh, following January 6th, Brent Staples wrote an article in the New York Times. Uh, you know, often people say when what happened at the Capitol, people were saying, uh, uh, Bishop Easterling, oh, this is not who we are. Mm. But the history of the United States is rife with episodes of political violence far bloodier than the one former President Trump indicted at the Capitol. Right. And mm. I like what Brent Staples says, Brad. He says, it, ignoring history is not helpful. Uh, as well-meaning leaders and talking heads queued up to tell the country this was an aberration, this is not who we are as a people. But in fact, when you look back at our history, it is who we are as a people. Uh, the the history, history of violence, the history of... I think back, uh, I, I'm a baseball fan. I don't know about you, you Brad, but I used to collect baseball cards. And so one of the ones I wouldn't trade was Hank Aaron or Ernie Banks. Yeah, I was a Cubs I'm a, fan. I'm a Cubs fan too, Bishop. <laughs> and But often, you know, Hank Aaron received, you know, did you know that they wrote his obituary after he hit the 713th home run? Uh, the, the newspapers in Atlanta, the Atlanta Constitution, they had the, his obituary because Threats were that if he were to break Babe Ruth's record, he was going to be killed. That's right. Uh, and so when we think about all of the, the people that we have we benefited from during Black, especially Black History Month, we often don't think about all of the history of racism and violence that 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 African Americans and other persons of color along the way have been subjected to, that it's also part of our history. And I think we are paying a, a steep cost for ignoring uh, the, our history. It's fraught with, obviously, it's fraught with victories and progress, but also is fraught with many, uh, many uh, shameful, sinful uh, things that have happened over the course of time. So well, progress, what... progress does not roll in on the wheels of inevitability, as Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. says. And so the, this is a great time to be a follower of Jesus uh, if if we really take the if we take the gospel seriously, one of the fine things I find just amazing is both of you mentioned kind of this specter of uh, of violence and really some horrible behavior that's out there is how more and more people haven't just been absolutely irate with the violence that has happened and more, speak to you know the whole just ridiculous it has been. And uh, how so many people take it more or less in stride. And I don't get that. I just don't get that. And how we need to be speak forcefully to this in, in the church and how the church too often has been mute, as both of you have said. And I just think we're finding ourselves this interesting inter, it's, uh, intersection. And maybe it's just me as a white pastor becoming more and more aware of it. But this intersection of, of racial injustice, of political just nuttiness and of, you know, this COVID virus kind of magnifying everything. We find ourselves in this position that the unique opportunity for the church to speak into it, uh, this world. And Bishop Easterland, I was wondering if you, you, you also uh, spent some, you have a degree in law. And so you have some public service in your background and uh, some time as a prosecuting attorney. I just wonder if you might speak to this intersection of the law, of politics, of, of the racial issues, even the, even the COVID virus, how maybe anything your background could speak in, in, into that during such a time as this? Well, so we certainly know, and, and there's a book, uh, The Color of Law, that talks about how the laws of this nation uh, were, were, were drafted to exclude, to penalize, to punish people of color. We go back to uh, when um, after, after uh, the wars and men were coming home, women also, but certainly men were coming home as veterans. And, and as we were getting into becoming this nation of, of industry and production, how the housing markets, right, began to, to pop up around the factories. And then the banks got involved in being able to offer loans so that individuals could live near these factories. And, and we began to, to see these suburbs, right? And, and the, the quality of life, much of the wealth of many people in, in this country, not the trillionaires and the billionaires, I'm talking about the everyday people, really began in those moments. And who was excluded from that? Black people were excluded from that. That's redlining, right? Those laws that were written, those policies and practices written, 
to systemically preclude and exclude black and brown people from being able to buy those homes. And if you couldn't buy the home near the job, if you were having to take two and three forms of transportation to get to work, right? The likelihood of, of, of you being able to, to arrive early, to stay late, so that then you might be promoted was lessened. So, so then we begin to see a difference in how people are, are, are being able to navigate the workforce, right? So many things, the postal service, e even um, if you look at uh, the, the um, fire service and, and, and our police academies, all of them had practices written into them that privileged European Americans by virtue of who they were or, or the schools they were able to go to, the, 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 the things that they brought to the exam and excluded people of color. So, and, and, and people often say, which informed which? Did the law inform the country? Did the country inform the law? The country informed the law. Those laws were then codified and, and, and have just served as a foundation in this country to keep certain persons perpetually behind and needing to catch up. And that's why today we cannot just talk about equality. Equality surmises that you're starting at the same place, but when you're not even starting at the same place, you cannot talk about equality. You have to talk about equity. So we continue to amend our constitution. We continue to try to pass laws. Well, as the color of law talks about, we, we, we need to go back sometimes and, and almost demolish some of those laws because, again, they were drafted to perpetuate inequity. Sometimes we have to start from the ground up. Yes. Well, and in, in speaking to the situation of the ground up, what better time could it be for a prophetic word from the church to speak into that? And uh, yeah, as both of you mentioned, so much in our United Methodist theology and polity does speak well into that. Yeah, we have our own problems, don't we, in our United Methodist Church, and and we are, uh, you know, a, a a flawed vessel. I would just like for uh, both of you, Bishop Easterling and Bishop Tremble, to speak to the status of the United Methodist Church as we stand right now. We're facing a general conference and possible schism and all kinds of things. And I'm concerned, you know, I just, sometimes I just wonder how we can speak to the issues in our world when we are so wrapped up in our own, our own problems, our own family issues. I just like for you to speak to that in a minute. How can we be effective as a church uh, given the situation we're in, given our own problems? I'm going to let my elder brother go first. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I, I think Jesus, Jesus, Jesus is not hard to understand for me. Yes, he yes, he a few simple but poignant questions, uh, and some of them were invitations. Uh, one was, "Come follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men, women, boys, and girls." The other one question he asked, I think it, I think this would be the board of ordained uh, ministry question that Jesus asked, and this was, "Do you love me? Mm -hmm. Do you love me?" And of course, Peter finally says, yeah, well, you know, well, you know, we like, we all ask, you know, we love you. And then Jesus says, well, if you love me, then feed my sheep. Mm. If you love me, then tend to my lambs. So I think uh, I am uh, like Bishop Desmond Tutu. I borrow from his words. I'm a prisoner of hope. I think that at the end of this COVID, uh, on the other side of this COVID, is a great Christian revival forthcoming. And I want to be part of that. I grew up in, and I'm the trail, we probably can relate to this too. I grew up in a, a Methodist. My family was AME Zion in Alabama, but we ended up in the closest Methodist church you could go to. That's how I ended up United Methodist. <laughs> My parents moved to Chicago. But I grew up in a church uh, uh, that had a black tradition. And, 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 and they used to say, can I get a witness? You know, can I get a witness? And I don't know when you preach uh, a bread, if you, if you asked your con congregants that too. But, you know, that comes from a, a long tradition because there was a time, if you go back and Latrell would know this better than that, even in some of the Supreme Court decisions, that a black person could not cast witness in court against a, a white person. This, this was true for Asians as well. And there were, there's a Supreme Court case uh, that, that basically said that Asians could not testify against uh, white persons in the criminal court cases. So we we've. 
we've kind of appropriated that from the standpoint is, but we have a witness mm-hmm. that God has, God has uh, brought us through all of the obstacles that, that have taken place and still leave us in a place where we can not only make a difference, break barriers and so forth. The, the fact that on January the 6th, the same time with the uh, Capitol was being attacked, uh, Raphael Warnock and John Osman were, were being certified as, as elected in the state of Georgia. That's right. and, and as one of the writers said, he said that was not only uh, groundbreaking, that was a repeat of history. Because in, eight, in 1869, Hiram Rebels, a Methodist minister had, who had been a state representative uh, from Mississippi, I believe it was, was the year, year after that be, became a black member of the U.S. Senate. And right after that is when there was a backlash, uh, what we, we call the Reconstruction period, Jim Crow, the history of lynching took place. Uh, but through it all, even upbringing, let's fast forward to 2021 now, uh, there's been a sustaining power of belief that God is a God who can bring us much farther, much farther along if we stay the course. So I think in the United Methodist, uh, I know people are, uh, you know, uh, uh, anxious about what our future is, but I see us as being part of a larger movement of those people who follow Jesus Christ. I'm expecting and I'm predicting that there will be revival, Christian revival, post-COVID. And I just want to be part of it. And I want to be part of a United Methodist Church that's part of it. And I think our dismantling racism is is right in right in the line with that because I think there's no faithful discipleship unless there's going to be faithful commitment to dismantling racism. Thank you. Amen. Bishop Easterly, I really would like to hear your take on this issue too, the how our United Methodist Church speaks to the issues at hand. Well, my 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 colleague asked the question or repeated the question that Christ asked, do you love me? The question, another question that comes to my mind that Jesus asked the paralytic as he lay there, do you want to be made whole? Mm-hmm. Do you? And I think that's the question that is mm-hmm. also begging to be asked of this denomination. Mm-hmm. Do we want to be made whole? And if we do, are we willing to live through the pain that it's going to take for that to to occur. I have been saying for years now, as we watched the Lutherans go through this, as we watched our Episcopalian colleagues go through this, I was in Colorado at the time that that the Episcopal Church was going through its schism and, and my son was attending an Episcopal day school. And we would show up sometimes as folks were actually literally had begun to live in the sanctuary because they didn't want the other group to be able to come in and, and take that property. It was bitter and it was ugly to watch them go through that. Mm-hmm. Somehow we United Methodists think we're going to get through this unscathed. Mm-hmm. We are not. <laughs> it's going to be painful, right? Yes. Birthing, any kind of birthing process is painful. So, so, so as we're in this gestation period, moving into our next iteration of faithful witness and discipleship. Do we want to be made whole? Are we willing to stay the course? Are we willing to be the Christ followers we say we are? Stop othering each other. See, again, if we could spend another hour on that. We have been othering one another since, since the doctrine of manifest destiny, right? Since the doctrine of discovery, this notion that there is some superior race and and by virtue of that, they can do anything they want to whomever they want to get whatever they want. Um, There's still some of that within our United Methodist DNA. So do we want to be made whole? Are we willing to, to shed what keeps us from being whole, live through the pain of coming out on the other side and live more into who we are as transformed men and women of Jesus the Christ. Well, I heard two statements here from Bishop Trimble, the statement, the biblical statement, do you love me? And then from you, Bishop Easterling, do you want to be made whole? So moving forward here, I just like to get one more thought from particularly Bishop Easterling. I think I know where Bishop Trimble's at in this, but out of all this, What's the hope? What's our signs of hope? What What is the grace? What is the glory? What is the love? What do we have to look forward to? And uh, what are we going to be encouraged about moving forward? Amen. Amen. Well, you can see over my shoulder here this sign. 
this hope. I take it with me. You, it, uh, if you see some some of my, if I'm preaching out on the street or if sometimes if I'm at a prayer vigil, that sign goes with me. My conference has begun to ask, Bishop, did you bring the sign today? <laughs> because they know I take it with me. So I'll go back to that old hymn. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness, right? God, we are one in God. I'm talking about all humanity now. We are one in God, whether we want to believe it or not. And I, I, I say, and I understand the, the, the grammatical challenges to this statement, but I say it anyway. The isness of God is not in any way disturbed by the ain'tness of man. God is not disturbed by our inability right? To be who God is calling us to be. So my hope is that God continues to speak through the ages. Christ continues to be a witness. The Holy Spirit continues to call us into our better selves. I'm encouraged by the young people that I see. When, I, when I'm out now and we're having these marches and these prayer vigils and these rallies, I am seeing more of, of my white uh, young people then I am people of color. That's movement. That's hope. I'm seeing the young people say, what in the world is going on here? Of course, we're all equal. Of course, I don't deserve any more than my black and brown brothers and sisters. I'm beginning to see them care far more about creation, our young people, than those of us. You know, I must say that's where I lag in my social justice advocacy and, and, and living is, is creation care, but they get it. So, so my hope lies in, 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 in God and God's isness, but also in what I see being manifested through our young people, right? And, and so, no, we cannot lose hope. We cannot give up. God is still speaking, and, and we will yet be further blessed. And I love that imagery you're sharing, uh, Bishop Easterling, of carrying hope with you wherever you go. I love that. And so, uh, Bishop Treble, is there anything you would like to share just kind of con- to conclude our conversation, your word that you would want to leave with us? I want to, I want to thank my, my dear friend and colleague, uh, Latrell Easterling. I remember way back when, when meeting at an airport, my wife and I, and we fell in love with Latrell and, and her husband. And it was a tender moment for you at that time. I think you were a superintendent. And uh, I've always kind of watched. I didn't know our paths would cross again and I would end up in Indiana. I want to close, Brad, by quoting the uh, the poet who spoke so poignantly at the uh, uh, inauguration of of President Joe Biden, Amanda Gorman. Uh, And I think I was reminded she was quoting from Hamilton. I have not had a chance like maybe the two of you to to experience the the Hamilton uh, uh, Broadway um, experience. But. Uh, She said, for a while, we have our eyes on the future. History has its eyes on us. And later she said, we lift our gazes not to what stands between us, but what stands before us. So as followers of Jesus Christ, I believe uh, that we can be encouraged if we lift our eyes to not what stands between us, but what stands before us. In the name of Jesus Christ, I give God all praise. What a wonderful way to conclude our conversation. And I do want to extend my thanks as well to the word of encouragement from Bishop Julius Trimble of the Indiana area and the word of challenge and a prophet of prophecy from Bishop Latrell Easterling of the Baltimore, Washington Episcopal area. I just want to thank both of you for being our guests today on the United Methodist People podcast with Reverend Dr. Brad Miller. What an awesome conversation we were able to have today with Bishop Latrell Easterling from the Baltimore, Washington, Episcopal area, and Bishop Julius Trumbull from the Indiana area of the of the United Methodist Church. And it's been always been my privilege to talk to great leaders in the in the, in the church, and I like to learn what they bring to bear, what we could apply to the local church setting, because we talked about some really. Uh, difficult matters of racism and violence and injustice and and uh, and things having to do with very hurtful and painful things even regarding our own United Methodist Church and, and the divisions we have within the church. What I hope that you heard, my pastor friend, my church friend, 
is they also bring with them and take with them a message of encouragement and of hope. Bishop Trimble always has a message of encouragement, even the most difficult times. His personal mission statement is to encourage all people with the love of Jesus Christ to rise up to their highest potential, or in short, be encouraged. And that's my experience of Bishop Trimble as my bishop and as your bishop in the church as being an encourager. I am hopeful that I can carry that message to others as well as you, my friend, no matter what circumstances they are, to be an encourager. And I also hope that you heard Bishop Easterling speak about the practice that she has of carrying a wooden plaque with her in every meeting she goes to that simply says the word hope. And so the emphasis is to carry hope with you wherever you go. Carry hope with you. And Bishop Easterling talked about today about dealing with some very difficult issues and still being people of hope. And it is our responsibility to carry hope with us. That's our opportunity and responsibility here as clergy and as leaders in the United Methodist Church, wherever things may evolve in our church. We can always be people of encouragement and people of hope. I hope that you develop your own mission statement, your own thoughts about things. I have my own process that I look to carry with me. I call it the five A's. To The first A is to abide with God. The second A is to affirm others. And the third A is to live abundantly. And the fourth A is to be alert, use your mind. And the fifth A is to take have a bias towards action. I would encourage you to have your own processes as well. Here in the United Methodist People podcast, we are seeking to help you do just that by giving you opportunities to connect up with other leaders in the church and to learn from them. You can always do that at unitedmethodistpodcast.com. Of course, a lot of what we do as United Methodist is based on the teaching and the leadership and the mission of the Wesleys, John and Charles Wesley. So that's where I want to leave you today. A quote from John Wesley, which I think is appropriate to our conversation today. It goes like this. I quote, Unless God has raised you up for this very thing, you will be worn out by the opposition of men and devils. But if God be for you, who can be against you? Are all of them together stronger than God? Oh, be not weary of well-doing. Close quote. Great word from John Wesley. And I close with you now with another word from John Wesley, and I'll leave with you today to always do all the good that you can. Thanks so much for listening to the United Methodist People podcast with Reverend Dr. Brad Miller. You can continue the conversation and commentary about strengthening the connection in the United Methodist Church to accomplish our mission of making disciples of Jesus Christ for the transformation of the world. Visit the United Methodist People podcast on the web at unitedmethodistpodcast.com and connect at facebook.com slash unitedmethodistpodcast. And always do all the good you can.